Good morning, everyone. If you would, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to get started in verse 32 this morning and read through uh, chapter 5, verse 16. Um, And as you're uh, you're turning here this morning, uh, I just want to highlight, like, probably, like, half of you, my uh, voice and my nose is all stuffed up with this lovely winter sickness. So you might hear some unpleasant sounds uh, this morning, so uh, just try to hang in there with me, and uh, I know a lot of you are fighting sickness too, and so we'll get through this together and uh, try to learn something from God's word this morning. Um, but this morning, if, if you know your, the book of Acts at all, if you've read it in your devotions, quiet time, personal Bible reading maybe, or studying it at a church, then you know chapter 5 is kind of an infamous chapter in the book of Acts. Because the beginning of chapter 5, we meet Ananias and Sapphira, and there is this wild story of God's uh, wrath coming down on them and them dying in the middle of a church service. And this is the first scandal that the early church experiences. Now, as American people, uh, we love scandal. We consume scandal for fun. Uh, we, there's, every time I pop Netflix open to watch something, there's always a show called Scandal, never watched it, but it always comes up on my, uh, you know, my recommendations. There's podcasts about uh, murder mysteries. Um, we have politics on TV, which is enough scandal for a lifetime. And, uh, and we have reality TV that we love and we eat up, and that's why Survivor's on like its 56th season um, and all of this stuff. Even maybe in your own family, right? Um, I remember a couple times, Whitley and I, uh, when we lived in our old apartment, we would always, uh, there, was, there were cop cars that would frequently be at the corner of uh, this place, and we would open the blinds, and we'd both like stand on the couch and look out the window to see what was going on. But the truth is, we all love a good scandal until the scandal involves us, right? That's how it works, until it involves us. Until either we're the perpetrators or we're the victims in whatever scandal. And then it stops becoming fun and a little bit of a spectator sport and starts to become reality. In this passage of Ananias and Sapphira we're going to look at this morning, there's the temptation to view this episode like we would watch an episode of Survivor. Uh, To kind of watch it at a distance, be entertained and say, man, thank goodness that doesn't happen anymore. But I think we should heed this passage, and we should not look at it like that, but rather we should see that there is presented to us in this passage a very present threat that is in our midst as a local church right now, and is in every local church, in fact. So if you would uh, read with me, we're going to start in verse 32 of chapter 4, go all the way through chapter 5, verse 16. Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. And I invite you to pray with me now that he would... Be with us as we study it. Lord, we recognize that the same threats to the church then are at our doorstep now. Father, we pray that you would be with us and make us wise. Help us to learn from this passage the ways in which we are tempted to disrupt your plan in your church. And I pray that as we study it, you would show us Jesus, the only one who is able to help us change. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, there are three realities about the church that are revealed in this text. And I want to use those three realities as kind of the three hooks that we're going to hang this sermon on. So first, we're going to see the unity of the church then a threat to the church, and lastly, the witness of the church. So the unity of the church, a threat to the church, and the witness of the church. Let's start in uh, verses 32 through 35 there, chapter 4, with the unity of the church. It's no secret that one of the largest struggles in our modern society is loneliness, Loneliness has risen to epidemic levels in many different Western nations. And this has caused uh, governments to actually take heed of this and to address loneliness as a medical crisis. So let's take the United Kingdom, for example. In October of 2018, uh, Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, released this, this press statement in which she said, 
that one of the greatest public health challenges of our time is loneliness. And the release goes on to say, up to a fifth of all adults in the UK feel lonely most, if not all, of the time. And the effects of loneliness on the body are the equivalent of lifelong obesity or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's so bad that this is not a joke. Earlier that year, at the beginning of 2018, the United Kingdom actually appointed a government official called the Minister of Loneliness to help with these government programs that were going to address this healthcare crisis. This is serious. And things are no different across the pond here in America. We live in a, in a country that is chronically lonely, where individualism has left so many victims in its wake. And this is why whenever we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, all of this sounds so compelling. Right? If, whether you're in here and you're religious and you would consider yourself a Christian, or whether you are not religious or you're just trying to figure things out, this community that's portrayed here looks so compelling to all of us because it's radical, it's invasive, it's self-sacrificial, it's generous. And yet all of this make it seem like a foreign tongue to us, like it's coming to us from a foreign country. It strikes us as impractical, maybe unattainable in our modern world. And especially for us as Americans, right? Us capitalistic, individualistic Americans, right? So be honest with me. A lot of you, when you opened your Bible and saw Acts chapter 4 and started reading that, your communism alarms were going off right? They've been beeping ever since you opened the Bible this morning. Sharing of resources and no poor among the people sounds like a very un-American fantasy world to a lot of us. But let's slow down. Let's really try to take this passage in and see if we can remove some of this cultural baggage that we have. Try to see what makes this community tick. So let's read verses 32 and 33 again together. Let's see if we can pick up on some of these things. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So notice several things in these verses. So first, the text tells us that this community is of one heart and soul. So the nature of this community is that they are united in the deepest fabrics of their being. That's what the words heart and soul are attempting to communicate, that the deepest parts of who they are were united together as one. And this immaterial spiritual unity ends up expressing itself materially and tangibly. And second, notice what it is that produces this type of unity. It's the experience of gospel grace. You see, it's only the gospel of Jesus' resurrection that can produce this type of unity and generosity. And the gospel produces this type of unity in the church by changing each of us in two distinct ways. So there's two ways that the gospel changes us that makes us united 
as one church family. So first of all, the gospel changes our view of money. Now, those communism alarms might still be beeping. Let's try to turn those off together. Look at verse 32 with me. Look, if you read down, it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Okay, so let me just rest, set everybody at ease. They still own their own stuff, okay? And the church was not like the government coming in and taking their stuff and giving the stuff away. Now, I say this not to let us off the hook or to make a political or philosophical statement, but I say this to show that their generosity is voluntary. What they're doing is they're giving of their money and their resources out of this generosity that's worked into their hearts by the gospel of grace. You see, the gospel tells us that though we bring nothing to the table, God loves us in Christ anyway. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. They'll be on the screen for you. I think this verse captures the gospel in economic kind of language for us that makes it so apparent. Let's read this together. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, who we sang earlier in the service, was the word from the beginning. He was eternally existent with the Father as God, had all the riches of heaven at his disposal, lacked nothing. And yet he chooses to give of himself, to come down, to take on human form, and to die for our sin. And now through his resurrection, he offers us his life and grace free of charge. You see, you can't buy yourself into relationship with our God. You can't put him in your debt. That's not the way that this works. God gives to you, and all you can do is receive or reject. Out of the wealth of grace, then, that God has given to you, you're empowered to give away your material possessions because God has given freely to you. And so, as it says in verse 33, the church experiences the great grace of God tangibly as the gospel changes our individual hearts, makes us into generous people, and that generosity flows out of our hearts toward one another. And we experience great grace together as the church of Christ. So the gospel changes our view of money. Also, the gospel changes our view of community. And when you trust in Christ, not only are you united to Christ and have relationship with Christ, but you're also connected to, united to everyone else who is united to and has relationship with Jesus. I think we all know this in our heads, but we don't actually think this way. We're trained to think that maybe if we're single ourselves or if we're married, our families are like their own exclusive little communities that are shut off from the rest of the world. But the gospel tells us that those who are in Christ are closer to you than your blood relatives. 
There was a, a church uh, that we partnered with on a youth missions trip a couple of years ago when we went down to Atlanta. It was a great church, and we had a great experience with them. And one of the things that stuck with me most from that trip was actually just a simple phrase that this church would say regularly in their worship services together. They said it about three times, I think, while we were there, just in one service. But they said, a lot of times as the church, we say that you are like family to me. You're like a brother or sister to me, or you're like a mother or father to me. And they said, church, we are not like family. We are family, right? It's not that we're sort of kind of like family. You are more deeply family with the people in this room than those who are your blood relatives, You see, we don't come together as individuals to sit in a room, sing songs to God, and hear someone talk at us. This is a family reunion that you're experiencing here every single Sunday morning as the church gathers together. Do you view your church this way, your fellow church members this way? And does that impact the way that you live toward one another? And so let's look at all of this together in scope. So the gospel tells us that Jesus has radically disadvantaged himself to lift you up out of your sin and make you rich in his grace. And you have greater wealth in him than anything this world can give you. And the people that you live life with in this room are not just like family, they are your family. And so as Christians, how can we continue to look at our own home equity and 401k as more valuable than the needs of our family when this is true of us? Now, again, I don't say that to guilt trip you. The gospel makes it so that you give freely, not out of compulsion. But do you see that living life together as generous people changed by the grace of Jesus Christ is grace for all of us? living together in community. That's what verse 33 tells us. That's what this picture of community life in the early church shows us. Well, that's the unity of the church. Now let's move and look at the threat posed to the church. And so after Luke presents us with this compelling community and what it looks like, he moves to give us two specific examples One positive of how this community life works itself out, and one where it goes horribly wrong. So on one side, he shows us at the end of chapter 4 a man named Barnabas, who we're going to see a lot more from in the book of Acts. Barnabas sells his land and gives everything he has generously to the church. Ananias and Sapphira, not so much. And this story is incredibly shocking to us. And if it's not shocking enough, let me try to make us feel the full weight of this story. So let's picture uh, a worship service in our church. So we're all here at community. And uh, and we've just heard songs and we've, we've heard a sermon preached. And now we're going to take up this offering. So we bring an offering plate and we put it down the front, maybe here where the communion tables are. And we say, this offering is for the needs of our community, kind of like the benevolence offering that we take regularly when we have communion. This is for the needs of our community. If you want to give to it, come down the front and put some money in it. And so Matt and the band cue up this this highly emotional song that tugs at your heartstrings, and and some people come down, and they put a few uh, dollars into the offering plates. And then this guy 
who's well-respected in our church, comes from the very back of the room. I'm looking at Ray Rizzo right now. Uh, <laughs> Ray is a well-respected guy in our church. Uh, but Ray, let's just say some, some guy sitting back there where Ray is, gets up and starts walking down the center aisle. And he's got a little strut in his step. And he looks over his shoulder on both sides, sees if anybody's looking at him, notices the hu- two huge bulges in his pocket of cash. And he comes up and he takes these wads of $100 bills and smacks them down in the offering plates. And then Benjamin, who's sitting up here, stands up and says, you have not lied to man but to God, and he's gone. And then Gary and the ushers come in and drag him out. <laughs> um, but do you feel how, how serious that would be? What our react? We would be terrible. Like, how would we move? We would be paralyzed. To say that this story should shock us is a fair claim. And I think in order to rightly understand it, we have to try to dig at the nature of what it was that Ananias and Sapphira did wrong. What is it that they did that warranted this type of response from God? And as we read the story, what becomes clear is that their sin is not that they wanted to keep back some of the money for themselves. Uh, If you look at verse 4, it says clearly that they had the right to do with the land what they wanted, and then after they sold the land, they had the right to do with the money what they wanted. So it wasn't that they didn't give all their money away. Again, this is not a compulsory community where you have to give so and so much, but the foundation of their sin was that they didn't want to give all their money, but they wanted to look like they gave all their money. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted uh, recognition without true sacrifice. They wanted a surface level generosity without the kind that gets down into your heart and your soul and changes you. But with that said, it does appear like there is greed involved as well. Look with me at verse 2 again. It says, And with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now that word there that's translated as knowledge is actually a word that means to make someone an accomplice to something. So Ananias makes Sapphira an accomplice in this plot that they have in order to greedily keep back money for themselves. It's premeditated. It's very dubious. And they want to keep their money back so that, this is another piece of this, they can look just as good as Barnabas, who gave all of his money away from the land that he had sold. Now, think about it. Even in our world today, if you were to sell an entire property that you owned and give all of that money to the church and still survive, you have to be pretty well off. So both Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, we can suspect, are wealthy people. So what we have here in this church is this rich couple trying to posture themselves to look just as generous as the other rich couple. It's this rivalry of the rich that's going on in the church. It's this disgusting cocktail of greed and hypocrisy. See, the gospel has not gotten down to their hearts and changed the way they look at money or community. They're still greedy. 
They still desire to look good in the eyes of others. And if we're honest at all with ourselves, these same hindrances to the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel are alive and well in our hearts and in this church today. But there's still one more piece of this story that helps us grasp the gravity of this situation. Read verse 3 with me again. It says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You see, Satan, that great enemy of the church, will do whatever he can to demolish the unity and witness of Christ's church by turning God's people into hypocrites. And we fall for this way, way too often. And think about what the flow of the book of Acts has taught us so far. So the church springs up. They're living together in this vibrant community, and Satan's like, this has got to stop. And so he sends them persecution. And that doesn't work. That only makes them pray for more boldness and draw closer together. And so he says, I know what will work. I'll use money and how badly they want to look good. And he works that into this church here. And he seeks to do the same today. To sow hypocrisy and sin and comparison into the church in order to tear her apart and derail the plans of God. And when we see the threat as that serious, this all starts to put God's anger in perspective for us. See, God takes the fellowship and unity of his people seriously. God himself entered into our world of sin and died in order to create this community of generosity. He will not tolerate public defilement of his people like this. And now we realize God doesn't step in and judge definitively like this anymore. That's not our church experience, at least not regularly for sure. This type of judgment, I think, has a special place because of this story's place in biblical history. But what it's supposed to show all of us who come after is that God does not take sin lightly in the church because sin tears the church apart. And what should our response be to this righteous judgment of God? I think verses 5 and 11, which are in parallel, tell us that this story should cause us to fear God in reverence and to be careful to take the unity of the church as seriously as he does. So church, we need to be watchful against sin and hypocrisy in our own hearts that would tear us apart. Let us fight against greed and coveting, against jealousy and gossip. May we not be people who harbor bitterness towards one another, but let us be the kind of people who are quick to confess sin and address wrongdoing humbly with one another. Let's watch our own hypocrisy So that we don't turn into the kind of people who show up here on Sunday mornings and act happy to see everyone and put on this fake spirituality when the rest of our life looks entirely different. So many things threaten our unity as a church. 
There are so many fronts on which we have to fight. But God gives us his spirit and his gospel so that we would be drawn deeper together in unity as a church. So let us fear God, be aware of our propensity to sin and tear others down, and let's confess our sin and move forward towards one another in generosity. So that's the threat to the church. Now let's move on, and as we close, look at the witness of the church. So if you look at uh, verses 12 through 16, you see that, that the way that the people respond to the apostles and to the church after this episode is they respond with either acceptance of the gospel or respect for their message. At least for the time being, they don't respond by getting angry and lashing out. They're either accepting or they're respectful of their message. And that's interesting. And I think what this tells us is that God doesn't just care about the purity and unity of the church for the church's sake, but also for the sake of the world. You see, only a church that displays its unity in Christ will be a compelling witness to the reality of Jesus to a watching world. So let's take a step back. Do you see what this whole passage is teaching us as a whole? So as sin is dealt with and the unity and generosity of the church is maintained, the church then becomes a vibrant witness to Jesus as she is united and living together. And we all know this to be true, don't we? Except I think oftentimes we know it to be true because we know the ugly underside of this. Even in the last few years, think about if you are aware of prominent churches and church leaders that have compromised the witness of the church by the way in which they have fallen into sin. And notice, this doesn't just tear the church apart, which it very rightly does, but it tears apart an entire city. So that, think about if you were in a, in, a, in a city, let's say in Harrisburg, and a church that was large just had blown up because of sin, and you're out on the street sharing your faith, and you say that you're a Christian, how are you going to respond when somebody says to you, yeah, but this church, was a, this church was a Christian church, and look what happened to them. It's this type of hypocrisy and sin that lead people to reject the gospel and view the church as just a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. And so I would just pause and say that maybe you're here this morning and it's Christians that have been keeping you from Christianity. And maybe you're here this morning and even the fact that you're here is a big step for you because of what you've experienced of the church and of Christians. And I would just say that, that we're glad you're here um, and we hope that this experience in our church would be radically different. That you would see the gospel of Jesus lived out as we mess up and as we live together in love and unity, we pray that you would see something different. But our calling then, as a church, is to take our unity and generosity and put it on display for the world to see. See, as the world sees the way in which we live together as family, addressing our problems, repenting to one another, forgiving one another, and being generous with one another, I pray that we would bear a witness to the world corporately. Now, I think 
oftentimes as, as pastors, uh, we fall into the trap of only ever uh, encouraging you all to go share your faith as individuals. And, and this is good and right, and we want to encourage you to do this. But oftentimes it's, okay, you go and you share the gospel with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and the people that you work out with, and then you're on your own and you do that and then come report back to us about how that goes. I think in our culture especially, where most people see Christians as judgmental hypocrites, the best witness for the gospel today is the way that we all live as family together for the world to see. That is a witness to the gospel that makes Jesus real to people. See, we need to not only be family in the walls of this church, we need to be family for our neighborhood and our city to see. And so let's think about the ways in which we can do this, that we together as a church can display the beauty of Jesus for the world to see. Let's just think about our neighborhood. How might we as a church get outside of our walls together and love and serve our neighborhood so that they see Jesus. And if you have ideas as to how we might do this, this is not a rhetorical sermon theoretical question. Like the pastors and elders of our church, we really want to know this stuff. So if you're passionate about a ministry that you think our church could plug in and do in our, in our city, we want to hear about it. I think uh, as a church, we've, we've used the language of program light a lot to describe our ministry philosophy and how we don't want to have all these ministry programs going. We don't want that to discourage you from coming to us with the heartfelt burden that you have to reach our city in a given way. We want you to come to, that, that, come to us with that, and we want to empower you and the church to do those various ministries. So if you have a way that we can serve our neighborhood and display the gospel of Jesus, please tell us. Let me just stir our hearts and our uh, imaginations with just one thought. So a lot of us in here are in small groups. Think about the way that your small group can be a tangible expression of Jesus to those in your surrounding community. Maybe you just pick a local public high school and you say, we're just going to do something small and be faithful and try to share the gospel in the way that we serve. So maybe you take the dirty football jerseys home on Friday night after a football game. You wash them and you get them back by Monday morning. Or maybe your small group shows up before work and buys coffee and donuts for the faculty and staff of the school and says, hey, we really appreciate what you do and the way that you care for our neighborhood by educating our children. And we want to thank you for that. That will put Jesus on display. People don't do that, by the way. Uh, I talked to one of my buddies who goes to church here in between services who's a teacher, and he's like, that just made me smile because that'd be awesome if people did that. So think about the way that our church, a unified, humble church, could be a witness in our world today. A world where loneliness is an epidemic. A world where greed and individual comfort are valued above other people. I pray that our church, through our generosity that's worked in us by how deeply and richly God has given to us, that our generosity would be on display for the world to see. And as people see it, they would say, Jesus is real, and he does change people. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we thank you for the way that you have given to us freely. You have said, as you invite us in Isaiah 55, that we're able to come to you and buy wine and bread without price. Lord, we thank you that you've given to us richly in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that that would work its way into the DNA, into the bones of our church, so that we would be a people that give radically and sacrificially to one another. And this might put Jesus on display so that people can't miss him. We love you. Pray all these things by the power of your spirit. Amen.